All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again for providing us time and opportunity and a place to gather, to turn our attention once again to studying you and your ways. Father, we need to know you better. We long to know you better. We pray that time we spend together tonight would move us in that direction. And we pray that knowing you better, we might love you more deeply and serve you more effectively. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to push on with our study of pneumatology. Um, we're going to move through the first few slides very quickly. I think most of this stuff is going to be review. I want to have some time to talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is one of the most confusing and controversial topics in pneumatology. Later on, we will deal with tongues and spiritual gifts, and those as well can be very controversial. Okay. Now, last week we talked a little bit about the person and the nature of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk very briefly about his works. We know that he's been at work since eternity past, and he's still at work. We know that he was at work in creation. We've discussed his roles in revelation, inspiration, and illumination, the giving of the Bible. We know that he was work, at work in the incarnation and the life of our Lord. We will talk in a few minutes about some of the ways in which he's at work in the salvation of the lost. We know that he is very much at work in the process of sanctification, our growing to be more like Christ. Scripture also says that he is at work in restraining sin in the world. Now, you can look at these topics in the notes. There's not a lot said about the role of the Holy Spirit in creation. We've already discussed his role in Scripture, and our focus will be on the remaining elements, three through six in the list. Okay, in the incarnation of our Lord, he was the agent of the virgin birth. Mary was told that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. We know that he filled the Lord Jesus. Luke 10.21 tells us that. We know that the Holy Spirit called the Lord Jesus to go into the desert in order to be tempted by Satan. The Lord says that the Holy Spirit is the source of the prophecy that he brings. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Luke 4.18, it's also said that the Holy Spirit is the power behind Christ's miracles. And that's an important thing because a little later we're going to discuss the so-called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the significance of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is very closely related to the role of the Holy Spirit in the miracles of Christ. Now the Holy Spirit in some ways can be viewed as the replacement of Christ. The Father sent the Son and the Son before he left said, When I go, I will send you another comforter and he will do a number of things for you. And in that sense, the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity to whom each of us is actually the closest, even though in some ways we're unaware of his presence. We can't really feel it, but he lives in us, and he is with us 
and he is the source of our spiritual power. Hebrews 9.14 makes a statement that suggests that the Holy Spirit may have been involved in Christ's death, but that one is disputed and we won't spend any time looking at it. Romans 1.4, Romans 8.11, and 1 Peter 3.18 speak about the Spirit's role in raising Christ from the dead. Now you can see from all of these things that it's probably fair to say that Christ lived in the same kind of dependence upon God the Father and the Holy Spirit as we must do as believers. You've heard me say before that Christ didn't cheat. He never used his own divine powers to sustain himself. Why did he spend time in prayer? He asked the Father to help him just as we must ask the Father to help us. He sought the power of the Holy Spirit in his ministry just like we must seek the power of the Holy Spirit in our ministry. And so Christ is a model for our dependence in particular upon the Holy Spirit but also on the Father. Now the Holy Spirit was was and is at work in the salvation of the lost. Now, this is kind of small. I apologize. But I was trying to fit a lot on this slide. Generally speaking, the Father planned the Son provided, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption. Okay, That's generally speaking. It's not to say that every member wasn't involved in every aspect, but they do have special roles in each of those areas. Now in ST4, we looked at the steps of redemption. We saw election, calling, regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, forgiveness, indwelling, sealing, slash, adoption, and testimony, sanctification, and perseverance. Now in this list, I've put asterisks next to calling, regeneration, indwelling, and sanctification because those are areas in redemption in which the Holy Spirit has a special role. Okay? Let's look at these just very briefly. Okay? Conviction. John 16.8. You remember that passage? The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Romans 1.18 to 19. Um, let's take a look at that one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Now the reason I read Romans 1, 18 and 19 is that Romans 1, 18 and 19 says that all men are guilty of suppressing the truth. That must mean that in some sense all men know the truth, right? Now, the reason I'm linking that with John 16 is that when you read in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, there's some question as to what the world means, okay? I think there the world means everybody, just like it does in John 3.16. And the point is that the Holy Spirit works through the evidence of the physical world to bring every human being to the knowledge of the fact that he or she is a sinner 
and the knowledge that there is a God to whom he or she is accountable. So you put those two together, and my understanding, and by the way, not all theologians agree with this, but my understanding is that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is applied to all believers, but that conviction is not enough. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Is applied to all people, but that conviction is not enough to bring every individual to faith. It takes more. It takes the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It takes the removal of the satanic blindness that we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Does that make sense? See where I'm going? Because that, that passage in John 16, where it says he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, is a difficult one if you argue that that convicting work is the convicting work that's applied only to the elect. And you've got the word world, meaning only the elect, in the Gospel of John, and John 3.16 stops being a promise of universal salvation to whomever will come. See the problem? Okay. Now, restraint of sin, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. God says, my spirit will not strive with men forever. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 speak of the, the removal of the restrainer in the future days of the tribulation. Now, I think in Genesis 6, it's clear that it's the Holy Spirit who's being, being spoken of. And in 2 Thessalonians, uh, where does it say? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, and you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's probably a reference to the restraining work of the Holy Spirit, which is exercised through the presence of the church on earth. And when the rapture comes and the church is removed, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit will stop being omnipotent. I'm sorry, omnipresent. He'll still be present on earth, but he won't have believers through whom to work until a new core of believers is generated through the salvation of those who are left behind after the rapture. Okay? Anyway, these two verses are really the only two clear ones that I know of in Scripture that speak directly of the Holy Spirit restraining sin now calling the sinner Romans 8.28 very important passage that might be 8.29 um, speaks of the calling work of the Holy Spirit no it's 8.28 we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose for whom he knew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Most would argue that that's speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now Romans 10:14 How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed and how shall they believe? I don't think that's the right verse. Scratch that one. I'll have to check that. Um I think I must have had something else in mind. But both of those passages speak of calling, and the second one though is speaking of people calling on God, not God calling on people. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned specifically in Romans 8.28.
but most would attribute the calling work to him. Sorry about that. That was unclear. Okay. And the work of the Holy Spirit in illumination. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. An important passage that talks about the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And then the second passage that I've listed there, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, to that's the passage where we're told that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't perceive the gospel. That is why the illuminating work is needed. You're right. You're right. It is. I'm doing that whole thing where I read the number off the top of my page instead of looking at the chapter. Thank you. Please correct that. It's 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. I make a lot more mistakes in the PowerPoints, but there are mistakes in the notes too. Okay. Now, the work of the Holy Spirit in redemption, and now let's move on to regeneration. Okay, the Spirit is the one who gives spiritual life to the believer. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses, unable to have fellowship with God. John 3, 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. I think it's correct to capitalize Spirit there. I think it's speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who causes us to re- be reborn. He's the one who renews us, who reconstructs us, who changes us, who sanctifies us, who makes us what we could not otherwise be. Now, the evidence of Scripture is that the event of regeneration is A, instantaneous. It's like flipping a light switch on. You either are or you aren't. It is B, a divine work. John 1.12 speaks of our being made children of God. And C, it is not necessarily accompanied by signs or an experience. And lots of people are born again and they don't have any particular experience. Now, some people feel like somebody just dumped a 55-gallon bucket of clear water on their heads. And that's wonderful. You know, some people are miraculously delivered from alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever it might be. And other people just say, praise God, I'm saved. And there's not really an experience. Um, The results of regeneration, and this is kind of a review, include a new nature, a new ability to live righteously, a new life and love for God, and a new kind of life that's called eternal. Now, when I say it's a new kind of life, I'm saying that because the distinction between what we had before we were were saved and what we have now is not merely temporal. The fact of the matter is that every human soul is immortal, even the souls of the unsaved. 
they will live forever in the lake of fire. Jesus said in John chapter 17, This is eternal life, that they may know you, and they may know me whom you have sent. So, we have eternal life now because we have a relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit who dwells in us. So, it's a different kind of life. Any questions? A lot of this is review from ST4. Um, yes, I do. And I think... Did we talk about that last week at all? I can't remember if we did. And honestly, I can't remember if I get to it today. Let me chew this ice. I believe the evidence of Scripture is that saints in the Old Testament were regenerated just as we are, that it was an irreversible process just as it is with us, but they were... They did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It says in John 7.39, the Spirit was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. The Spirit could do special things for them. He could come upon them to empower them for certain tasks. But that was a reversible ministry. And the best example of that is King Saul, who I'm convinced was saved because Scripture says that God gave him a new heart. But on the day that David was anointed as king, God removed the enabling power of the Holy Spirit from Saul and placed it upon David. And, you know, unfortunately, we sing Psalm 51, that song, Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That song should never be sung in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. It hopelessly confuses kids, at least not without explaining what it's about. Okay? But I do be believe regeneration was the same in the Old Testament, just without the presence of the indwelling spirit. Is that what, what you're looking for? Okay, good. All right. The work of the Holy Spirit in redemption indwelling, sealing, and adoption slash testimony. Okay, Romans 8 and 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is not his. What does that mean? All believers do have the Spirit. There's no such thing as a believer who is not indwelt by the Spirit. And that fact will become important when we discuss charismatic issues and the issue of, of the baptism by the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit, which some charismatics would say is an additional thing that happens sometime after salvation. Okay, sealing, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, tell that we were sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Spirit in us is an indelible and unremovable guarantee that God will complete the process that he started on the day that he regenerated us. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We will get our resurrection bodies. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. Okay, Romans 8, 15 through 17 speaks of our adoption and the testimony that the Spirit gives within us to the fact that we have been adopted. Now, in Scripture, the concept of adoption is a little bit different than what we think of in the modern world. The concept of adoption in Scripture really has more to do with inheritance 
then it has to be to do with being made part of the family. Now, we are told in John chapter 1 that we become the children of God as a result of redemption. But the term adoption speaks more directly to the fact that God has guaranteed to include us in the distribution of blessings that will be made during Christ's kingdom and during eternity. Okay? So... You know, when you think of adoption, don't just think about becoming God's child. Think about becoming part of God's estate, if you will. Not that we're waiting for God to die and leave his stuff to us, but it is the idea that he owns everything, and one day we will share in that ownership with him. Okay, notice, notice that since the Spirit provides testimony to our adoption, if we are out of step with the Spirit... Who wrote that book, Keep in Step with the Spirit? Was that Dr. Ryrie? No? Okay. Well, there's a good book called Keep in Step with the Spirit. Somebody wrote 30, 40 years ago. If we're not walking with the Spirit, then we don't hear the testimony of the Spirit that's reminding us that we belong to God. In other words, when we're walking in sin, we lose the blessing of the confidence of our relationship to God. We don't lose the relationship, we just lose the blessing of being confident of it. We don't have that feeling, and that warm, fuzzy feeling, if you will, of knowing that God loves me and we are close to Him. Okay, the last large area in which the Holy Spirit is involved in redemption is in sanctification. Now, sanctification is the process of actual change in the believer. Okay? Now let me let me turn that off for a second. There is a sense in which we were sanctified on the day that we were saved. On that day, God said, "You belong to me and you're mine forever and nobody else is going to take you." That's what we call positional sanctification. But there's also progressive sanctification, which is the process of actual change to become more and more like Christ. Okay? Um, and that is the special province of the Holy Spirit. Second Thessalonians 2.13, an important passage, says... I'll find it here in a second. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation... There, by the way, is an interesting statement of election, isn't it? God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Okay, you can see very clearly there that the Spirit has an important role in sanctification. Romans 8.29, that's the passage that says, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. First uh, Peter 1.2, what does that one say? If anybody gets there before I do, shout it out. It says, We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There the word obedience is very important. Okay? A sanctified lifestyle is an obedient lifestyle. A person who says, I love Jesus, I'm just like him, but I don't have any need to obey God, has just missed the picture entirely. A sanctified person will be obedient. 
John 14:16, the Lord Jesus said, I will send you a helper. And that's the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is closest to us. He is the one upon whom we must rely most closely in the process of growing to be like Christ. Now, there are three special issues that arise in Scripture concerning the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we'll spend the rest of our time on. Quenching, grieving, and filling. Okay? Quenching and grieving only appear twice in Scripture. Do not quench the Holy Spirit appears in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Now the context of that verse speaks of ministry to others and life among other believers, but there is no definition given for the term quench. Now quenching is what you do when you pour water on a fire or when you stick a piece of hot iron in a bucket of water. Okay? And since the Holy Spirit is often spoken of as a fire, it's not surprising that this figure would be used. We can make an intelligent guess that to quench the Spirit is to resist or hinder his ministry. Now, when we look at grieving, you'll see why I've been rather vague in the meaning of quenching. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, the whole context in which that verse appears in Ephesians is a discussion of preserving and or harming the unity of the body. There is a warning there not to give a foothold to the devil in verse 427. So it's probably true that the term grieve here means to harm the unity of the body in such a way that you make the spirit sad. How does Ephesians chapter 4 start? It starts with a call to what? Take a look at it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, a work life worthy of the calling with all lowliness, lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I would argue that Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that the purpose of the church is to demonstrate the wisdom of God through unity and cohesive action under the headship of Christ. Then chapters 4 and 5 tell us that the Spirit is the one who creates the unity tells us how to exercise that unity and it tells us what not to do in order to avoid destroying the unity. So putting all those things together, I think it's probably true that grieving the Holy Spirit is acting in such a way that we destroy the unity of the body by backbiting, by gossiping, by sinning against each other, by fighting. And when we do that, it makes the Spirit sad. So, you know... I'm not going to pound the pulpit on this, but I think quenching the Spirit is more of an individual thing. It's simply resisting the Spirit in a general way. Grieving the Spirit is a particular kind of sin against the Spirit where we hinder the unifying work of the Spirit by sinning against each other. And both of these things are obviously bad. We don't want to be doing them. Okay? 
Now that's that's as specific as I can get or as specific as anybody can get because the terms are never defined. But I think they're reasonable assumptions from the context. Hey David. Yeah. You said something in our Bible said one day um, that I'll probably never forget is whatever we do, the Spirit is watching us do it. He's right there with us watching us do it. Yeah, I mean. When you think about that, you think, yeah, that he's in there, he's looking out through your eyes, he's hearing what you say, in some sense he's experiencing what you experience. Yeah, I know, it's a scary thought, isn't it? He goes where you go. Yeah. That can be a good way to restrain our sinful impulses. The problem is that we're really good at ignoring what we know. But you're right, if we can keep that in mind, it really helps. Okay, now let's talk about being filled with or by the Holy Spirit. The key passage here is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the key passage where we are called to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Now I want to make some observations on this passage. Okay, the first one is this. We are commanded to be filled. Paul is speaking on behalf of God and he says, Be filled. It is a command. Now, if it's something that God can command us to do, then to some extent it is something over which we have control. It is not something outside of our control. Now, make sure you understand, though, that it's not something we can do instantaneously or without effort. If I tell my son, I want you to get a 4-0 this semester in college, he doesn't snap his fingers and have a 4-0. He's got to work. Okay? And, and there is work involved in being filled. Now, this is important. In that passage, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The comparison with drunkenness is intentional, but it's also intentionally limited. Paul doesn't say, do not be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Spirit. Okay? I think the comparison implies influence or control, but never the lack of responsibility. Okay? Now, when a person drinks, he comes, what do we say legally, under the influence of alcohol, but he's submitted to that influence by voluntarily drinking. Okay? When we are filled with the Spirit, we are also seeking to come under the influence or control of the Spirit. But again, it's a voluntary thing. Now, the fact that Paul compares the two but doesn't make an exact parallel leads to the third point. Okay? Drunkenness reduces your capabilities. Filling increases your capabilities. Okay? Think about that. I think this is why Paul doesn't make an exact parallel. Okay? 
filling of the Spirit increases our capabilities. Drunkenness decreases them. But in each case, it has to do with the choice that we make. And in each case, it requires effort on our part. Okay. Now, let's go a little further. What I want you to do is compare Ephesians 5.18 and 19 with Colossians 3.16. You can see it up on here. Notice that the two parts in blue are roughly parallel in Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then in Colossians 3.16, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, can you see how those two sections are almost the same? Okay, now I'm going to do something here that is not logically necessary, but I believe it is logically plausible. If the result of these two things, or the accompanying factors of these two things are the same, then it may be the case that what goes beforehand are roughly equivalent. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Now, I think you can argue that these two are probably, I wouldn't quite say equivalent, but that they go together, because the books of Ephesians and Colossians are sister books, aren't they? They're very, very similar. Those who read them were told to swap the books and read the books from the other church. Okay? And if you flow, follow the flow of the two books, they're quite similar. Now, let's just try this idea on. If those parts in yellow go together, then I would suggest that the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, is essentially equivalent to or accomplished by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. In other words, the way to be filled with the Spirit is to learn, know, and obey the word of God, relying upon the Spirit to provide the power to do so. Okay? Now, you get an interesting thing here. Okay? If this is true, don't expect to be biblically uninformed and to be filled by the Spirit. You need to know what God loves and what God wants in order to live in the way that God wants you to live. How do you know that? By studying Scripture. Okay? And notice, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay? If you plant a seed in the ground and you never water it and you never fertilize it and just sits there dry and dead and does nothing, is that seed dwelling richly? But if you fertilize it and you cultivate it and you water it and you tend it and you pull off the bugs and trim off the dead leaves, you get something beautiful, right? Well, the Word of God is pictured like a seed in Scripture. And if it's going to dwell richly in any one of us, that's going to mean that we're going to cultivate it that we're going to make our effort to do what it says in an attitude of prayerful reliance upon the Holy Spirit within us. Okay? This is what I think the filling of the Holy Spirit means. It takes effort. It doesn't happen automatically. 
It's not something mystical. Okay? Um, now, let me give you some practical implications. I think we're going to get through this, at least until you start asking questions. Okay, practical implications. Number one, one must exert an effort in order to be filled. In other words, filling is not automatic. Number two, you can't be filled without a knowledge of God's Word. In other words, filling is not for the ignorant. Number three, faith is necessary to filling. In other words, filling is not for the unbelieving. An unbeliever can't be filled with the Holy Spirit because you must first be indwelt by the Spirit and you must be able to understand Scripture in a way that only the Spirit would allow you to do. Okay, number four. Since it is possible and likely that one knows and understands less than all of Scripture, none of us know at all, okay, it's unlikely that anyone will be filled in every area of life. Okay? I think you can be filled, for example, in the way that you handle your money, but you may not be filled in controlling what goes into your eyes or your ears, for example. There are different areas of life in which we, we may be obedient in some areas and disobedient in others. We may be knowledgeable and obedient in some areas and ignorant and disobedient in others. So, filling is not, it's not all or nothing. Okay? In other words, you can be filled in part of your life and not in another, if you want to put it that way. So, using the word filled, yes. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, fill it. Yeah. We shouldn't think of filling in terms of sort of a spatial thing and a bucket that's overflowing. I think the real concept is control and influence, and that's and, and I get that from the comparison between drunkenness and filling. They both involve influence. They both involve control, they both involve a change in capabilities. Okay? But a drunk is not filled with alcohol, is he? I mean, if you check the body composition of a drunkard, there's probably only a few tenths of a percent of alcohol in him. But there's still an enormous influence, right? He's not an empty bucket that gets filled with alcohol. And, you know, if you want to carry that forward, I don't think we're an empty bucket that gets filled with the Spirit. It's not so much the idea of overflowing it's the idea of allowing the Spirit to have influence upon us. And, well, let us let me go forward to the next couple, and this may answer a little bit more of your question. Since filling is a command and no believer is always obedient, filling is not permanent. Okay? I can be, full, I can be filled at this moment and five minutes later not be filled because I stop obeying and stop allowing the Spirit to guide me and empower me. Finally, filling brings blessing to others and not just to me. It's not an invisible, hidden condition. If you are filled with the Spirit to some extent and there are others around you who see how you're living and what you're doing, they're going to know it. Now, it may not be immediately apparent, but a believer who is filled is going to be a blessing to be around, and a believer who isn't is going to be so much of a blessing to be around. Okay? Okay. 
Let me take Tommy first. Since it's only happened twice, are we to take John the Baptist in the world preparations for the coming of the Messiah? Okay, then it's, it's only mentioned, yeah. While John is said to be filled with the Spirit from birth, I think what that means is that he is under strong influence of the Spirit from birth. I, I wouldn't take that as meaning that John never sinned or that he never walked out of fellowship. But you're right, it was a preparation and it started early. Now, the Lord Jesus was probably filled with the Spirit all the time. But we're unlike him because quenching and grieving happen. And when those things happen, particularly quenching, I think the filling stops until we confess our sins and get back on proper terms and in healthy fellowship with the Father. Okay, it's 7.30. Let's stop here.